Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. With this podcast, I wanted to shine a light on the people who have put the heart into modern Manchester. You can build a city with bricks and mortar, but it's the people that make Manchester great. People like Justin Eagleton. It has that effect on you and gives you goosebumps. I want people to see it and give them something that they can take away from it. Justin is a massively talented artist, illustrator and designer, and a very good human being. He was born in Crumpsall and went to school in Middleton, where he lives now, with his family. He went from being a prop designer to the gaming industry and then into education and is now a widely celebrated artist. If you've seen his work, which includes the Haspienda Bee in the city, the Manchester mural on the print works and his series of portraits of famous Mancunians, you'll realise what an incredible gift this guest has. Interestingly, it's only in the past couple of years that Justin has started to feel proud of his talent and even acknowledge it. On this podcast, you'll find out why and also how much his beloved and much-missed dad, Roy, was his biggest champion from day one. Justin, welcome to We Built This City. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for joining me. So you're such a huge ambassador for Greater Manchester, and I know how much you love your city. So first of all, I want to ask you, how does Manchester inspire you as an artist? Just from a sort of everything point of view really it's the music the people the fashion the culture I've grown up here I've been here all my life it means everything to me because it's it's where I belong I think and everything motivates me and everything inspires me everything that I see and everything that I do and you've talked to me in the past about the power of art and you say that it has at times supported you from the health and well-being point of view can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, um, I think in areas of your life when you are struggling, I sometimes find it easier to just escape to a room and paint or draw. Um, and I've always done that. And I think from another point of view is if I create artwork for somebody else, it might give them a good sense of well-being, but inadvertently that will also give me that sense of well-being by creating something for someone. Yeah, from a well-being point of view, I just think it's it's such a, a beautiful craft. And in the same token as music is a release for people, I think art is a release for people as a mental health thing for the for the facilitator myself and for people who see it and embrace it. I think that's, that's very important. So there's a real kind of relationship between you creating that and the art being received by another yeah, person. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I do make that connection. I never do anything that doesn't, emotionally connect with me I don't really like doing any throwaway projects um, I like to connect and get to know people and get inside their psyche and, and there's a there's a there is a thing about if you are creating portraits or a piece of artwork there tends to be a lot of yourself within that mm. so and I think that that is an important factor I put my heart and soul into every project I'll move on to another one but in that moment, I will be very connected to who I'm drawing, painting, or what I'm creating for. I know that you said sometimes that you've actually been commissioned to do a portrait of a, maybe a loved one, and then you've given that to that person who maybe have it a gift or they've lost somebody. That's a very moving kind of situation, and, and sometimes you've even spotted something in in that person they've not seen themselves. Yeah, I've done quite I've done quite a lot of commissioned portraits, and one of the first ones going back 
how it sort of started where I did a lot more was um, somebody asked me to do a portrait when I took some business card designs into a, into a printer's. And the girl behind, she said, oh, I didn't realize you did portraits. Uh, would you would you draw my dad? And he, uh, he only passed away three weeks ago. And I could feel her getting a little emotional. And so I said, yeah, absolutely fine. So she gave me a picture out of her wallet of this really torn up black and white picture. I took it away. I digitally enhanced it so it, it looked better. So she had a better print of her dad anyway from back in the day. But then I drew him, took, a, took the image back, and I'd never met this guy, um, I'd only met her once when I went in the shop to pay. Um, and I went in and I framed it up and I gave it to this woman. And there was about four or five people in the shop at the time. So I gave it her, she turned the picture around and she literally just kissed it and started crying. Mm. Um, and I <laughs> had to leave the shop, <laughs> yeah. I had to walk out. But it was, it's that there's such power in eyes and in, in art and in faces that you can't really hide emotion. And I think to be able to capture that when you don't know the person is is quite a nice thing to be able to do. And is that journey of that time that you're with that particular person, does that lift you? Does it kind of give you energy or does it sometimes, can it, can it take something out of you? Can it drain you? Yeah, sometimes it's joyous because I know I'm creating something for somebody. And I think like going back to the start is, um, quite cathartic it's quite it's quite humbling for me to be given the the, the responsibility mm. to create a piece of artwork of somebody who's so close to somebody and so soon after they died you know I painted the young lad in Manchester who was uh he was stabbed to death in you know the last 18 months and I ended up painting a picture of him and I do know from you know going to the unveil etc how much that meant to the family and no it can't replace the person and no, it can't take away the pain, but in some aspects and some respects, it does mean so much to the family that someone's taken that time to almost create a, an image of them that they'd not really seen, a different aspect. And I know a lot of people have, have, have put that in a prime spot in their house, and it does give them some sort of solace in, in a real tough time. So, yeah, it does mean a lot having that, having that ability. That was Yusuf Mackey. Yeah, that was Yusuf Mackey. Yeah, I saw that that portrait and it was it's incredibly moving. I mean, I think what you're saying there also, particularly in the last 12 months, probably creativity and people picking up the the pens and going back to the scribble books has created a lot of support, hasn't it, and helped a lot of people through a very difficult time. Yeah. I think I think I was saying about during lockdown, I think creative arts have become they've come to the forefront, you know. It's the aspects of being able to create a piece of artwork, people have been going online to listen to music, listen to podcasts like this, get something from learning about other people. And I think it's, I've started lockdown lessons uh, and it was just an idea I had the first lockdown and it, it took off. And then I got a bit tired of it because it was mentally draining me a little bit. So mm. I had to take a step back. Well, then during this lockdown, I thought it's now getting very difficult for a lot of people. People are tired. Um, so I've done free art classes and, you know, we started out with about 80 the first week. We were up to 300, 350, I think, in three weeks. And it, it's just expanding and expanding. And, and the thing is, I'm getting messages from people who've just sort of said, you know, I had one last week where it said my husband has not been able to draw, but we decided to do the class. I'm a better artist. He's suffering from cancer. And 
it's the first time I've seen him smile in about six months just because we created a piece of art at the table together and it just gave us a bit of a moment. Oh. I've had 10-year-olds doing it. I've had 80-year-olds doing it. It's a simple thing. I can draw. All I'm doing is saying, for one hour a week, join me. I'll talk a bit of nonsense to you all. I'll show you how I've done things. I'll show you some of my artwork and just have a bit of release that's, you know, on paper. You know, you might be able to get something down there that's that you're proud of at the end and it might give you the inspiration to carry on doing it. Our lives are so busy and we are so glued to our phones, technology, TV, binging shows, etc. And during lockdown, I think it's quite nice to just take yourself away from all that. Get a piece of paper and a pencil, like you would when you talk to people on the phone and you just doodle away. You end up creating little pieces of artwork that you never even knew were. They're just coming out of your head. It's seeing something differently and just having a moment to yourself and away from, you know, some of this, this crazy time. Manchester's famed for its creativity. Have you seen anything that's really impressed you in these lockdown lessons? Um, well, yeah, it's good. It's like I always say after the lesson, I just say at the end, share, share around and let's see what everybody's done. And they're amazing. I mean, we had people drawing a, a bald eagle, last, not a bald eagleton, not <laughs> um, a, a bald eagle. Um, and we got them drawing hands and we'll work our way up to drawing. Basically, showing you how to draw a human face. That's where I want to try and get to. If you're rubbish at it, I don't really care. The whole point about art is that to you, it's your piece of artwork to you in that moment. And if it gives you an hour of release, you know, it, it could be a really, really influential hour for your week. Definitely. Yeah, I really see that. On a podcast recently, Tom Bloxham said that, and it's a different way of creativity, really, but rather than putting lines on a piece of paper or creating a picture, he tries to start the beginning of the day with a completely clean sheet of paper. It's that kind of idea of white room thinking, and then he builds what he's going to do and his journey for the day on that. So again, I mean, and you're normally too busy to think about that, but that was another lesson I've learned from from him. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, mine, mine just bounces around my head, and I should make I should make lists, <laughs> but I sort of tick them off creatively in my head, and it does make me fall over now and again. But you know, I am full of creative ideas. So let's talk about those creative ideas for from you from being a young kid. When did you actually start to realise that you could draw? What was your starting point? So yeah, going back to when I was probably seven or eight I used to sit with my brother Gavin who was an incredible artist he used to draw portraits all the time that was mainly what he did and I used to think I just wish I could draw anything like him and what I did at the time Sunday morning my mum doing in the ironing in the back room and she'd be listening to Billy Joel or Stevie Wonder and I'd because it was vinyl in them days the, the the album sleeve would be on the side and I'd try and draw the album sleeves that's what I did for nearly every Sunday I think through a lot of years if I wasn't playing football. So I can draw Elton John off one album absolutely without without even thinking about it. Um, I don't know why. I just used to always draw Elton John and Stevie Wonder. I used to try to paint Stevie Wonder. And then I sort of expanded into doing some pet portraits and mainly just people saying to me, oh, you can draw a bit. Will you draw my dog? Or you can draw a bit, will you? So I did pet portraits in the pub where my dad used to go all the time. And my dad used to pedal me around all over the show basically <laughs> you know my son will draw your pet for 15 quid and he'd probably keep a five for himself <laughs> Did he take a commission <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely and I, i'd get a tenner for me for me sweets <laughs> so i think that's how it sort of started and you know I, we used to go in the pub every sunday um 
uh, as a family, probably one of the things that we all did back then. You know, it was just nice to have that little bit of acclaim in amongst my dad's friends, be able to say that this was the artist in the family, so to speak, when in, in effect I was just copying what my brother did, who was really good at it. Um, so it was just a case of expanding it then and then how it progressed and what I wanted to do with that skill. And what did you do with that skill? Uh, <laughs> plenty of things. I, I wanted to be, there was two things. when I, There was a company near me that made props and scenery for television and they did things for uh, Euro Disney at the start of Euro Disney. So I thought I really wanted to do things there because I always like making things and creating. And I wanted to be a footballer. So, yeah, I became a prop maker because, you know, being a footballer took a lot of hard work and meant that I couldn't go out with girls and stuff. So um, I went into, I managed to write to lots of prop making companies and got turned down. And my mum's friend worked at the Royal Exchange and she put me in touch with this one in Ardwick. And I went working there as a, as a junior prop maker on about 80 quid a week or something. But to me then, it just didn't matter. I, I didn't care. They could have paid me anything as long as I could get there. Um, and he ended up making props sets at the age of 18 for Coronation Street, Granada TV. I did a set for Stars in Their Eyes. I was just doing lots of random things that were just like the most exciting thing on the planet at the time. Mm. You know, I was doing little bits of painting for Danger Mouse uh, and Cosgrove Hall. And it just seemed surreal that I could be involved in something that everybody was seeing, but they didn't know I had anything to do with. I think, and I, and I still get that now. So like when you were watching TV or something, you'd see your prop turn up on Coronation Street. <laughs> Yeah, the best, my best prop story, I've got two prop stories from uh, way back, which I was sort of drawn to, was uh, Des Barnes' boat, which unless you're of a certain age, you won't know <laughs> who that is. But there was a character in Coronation Street, his boat blew up um, on the canal in some dramatic scene where he's running away from some girl. Yes. And um, yeah, the, the boat blown up, and we, we went down to this canal in Lynn on this beautiful summer's day. The boat had already been set on fire for the TV. And we were just go, told to go down and make it look like it had been blown up. So we just sat by a canal for three days in Lynn, eating nice sandwiches and drinking nice, nice drink um, and cutting bits of this boat off and setting fire <laughs> to it. It was amazing. <laughs> but the best thing was that we did this unknown to everybody else who walked past and thought, what the hell are you doing? You're just putting a boat off a, a top of a boat on a canal. And then six weeks later, it was on Corrie. And I was just like, I had it on video for, I say video. I don't videotape for about 10 years <laughs> in amongst my uh, sort of uh, Aswad videos and Michael Jackson. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was just one of them. Things. And I, I also did um, a frying pan. I was sent on a mission. Somebody from Granada came in and said, we need a frying pan making. We basically need it. It's going to be in one of the key scenes in this big, big storyline. So they said, it's very simple. So the guy who was in charge of the company said, can you go and do it? So he just sent me to, um, I think it was Conran Street Flea Market or something in Manchester. It was proper proper Manchester anyway. And I went and bought a frying pan for about a tenner, came back. He saw, he saw the bottom off, bottom off in the workshop. And then basically just told, he showed me how to make latex. So I made a latex bottom for the frying pan and had to paint it to make it continually look like a frying pan. So that in the scene... It ended up being quite iconic. I wish I'd still had a video of it. Derek Wilton went out in the back garden when Mavis was in the house because they thought they had an intruder. 
So he went out and he ended up being a fox. And as he crept back into creep back in the house, Mavis, Mavis smashed him over the head with my frame. <laughs> but thankfully, the latex was bendy enough that he didn't kill him. But um, yeah, I think this latex must have bounced off his head and ended up in somewhere in Salford. But um, yeah, it was it was just. But again, it was one of those things that I I created something in a very small moment that was exciting to me that somewhere down the line, six weeks on, appeared on the biggest show on the telly, which it was, and it, it probably still is. That's a just fantastic stories. <laughs> and I remember the, I do remember the boat scene. I am old enough. What happened after the props? That sort of dried up after a couple of years. The company went bust, which was quite sad at the time because it was everything to me. I was literally earning no money, but it was just those stories and the things I was getting involved in. So, yeah, my dad... Again, my dad's got quite a key theme through my sort of art career, which has only come out from talking about it, really, in that um, he was talking to a man in the pub. <laughs> it's a key theme. Um, and he said, my son draws. And he had a games company in Cheetah Mill, which not many people do go in the local. And he said, oh, can he come down and test out for you? He's just lost his job. He's really good. And he, he wouldn't have sent me if he didn't believe that I could do it and believe that I would be somebody who could stand up in a that sort of place you know I wasn't an idiot I was somebody who could talk to people so I went down did a little testing worked on Thomas the Tank Engine for a few days doing a little color testing on the computer in the early days and managed to get a job and again I think I quadrupled my salary in a, overnight so I, I upgraded my Fiesta and <laughs> uh, <laughs> went on to an Escort because that couldn't that couldn't get nicked quite as easily um and i was working in the games industry with 30 lads in cheatham hill uh, there was the only woman we worked there was in the reception and that over the years the demographic of girls in games started to improve but it was i was there for 12 years and that part of my life is just such an amazing time i still talk to them now on facebook some other people and i worked on thomas the tank engine scooby-doo spider-man one of the biggest selling spider-man games and and I worked on FIFA for seven years. So for seven years, I worked directly for Electronic Arts through the company in Cheetah Mill. And again, it's that, you know, the company in Cheetah Mill was a very small company, but we were working on the biggest selling game in the world. And probably not many people knew that happened in Manchester through through 1998 till about 2003, four. Um, so I, I have, I've had three number ones, which is, wow. I don't know if that's more than Abbott or <laughs> Ellen. Ellen might be more than Ellen John. I think it might be. And so, how, I mean, how was it for you then to like kind of rock up on Market Street to go to a game or something like that and then see see your yeah. FIFA games and they're on the day of release? Yeah, that, that, that was like, the, the, see, these are the moments throughout my life where I love creating something so massive, but then almost stepping into a crowd and going, I did that in my head, but nobody knows it in the room. Mm. So we used to go, we always used to go to game on game release day because they always used to make a big fuss of it then. So game on Market Street, and a few of us would go down. Somebody had done the graphics, maybe a couple of the programmers, and even the games testers. Um, and we'd just go and stand in there and watch 500 kids at the unveiling of the game going mental, playing the game on the screen. And I'm just stood there going, that's my artwork on that screen that's going to be in living rooms and houses all over the world. And it's a very difficult thing to sort of equate to, really. But... It's something I'm very proud of. I can still go back now and play on the PlayStation, the original PlayStation, get them out of my dusty loft, brush them off, and show my son that my name rolls down the credits. And 
is like, yeah, that's amazing. Dad, can I have a sandwich? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you are so boring. Go away. Uh, but, you know, one day I'll be a YouTuber and he'll think I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> and I know just um, with the company that you work for, the gaming business, it, it was went into receivership, didn't it? And talking about relationships, you said you kept in touch with a lot of those people. That was like a family to you at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, that was 12 years of my life through, you know, all my formative years of growing into a career, basically. I was growing and growing. I was getting better at it. I was working on bigger and better games. And literally one day I was eating my lunch at my desk uh, in Cheetham Hill and a guy in a suit who I didn't know came in the office. I had my headphones on and he just said, oh, come down, there's a meeting downstairs at the minute. And you just don't think anything of it. There were people in suits coming in the company all the time from abroad, from America, you know, the big big conglomerates, the big companies. And we went into this meeting room and everybody stood around in in a semicircle all with ashen faces. And maybe Mr. Naive is thinking, oh, we might be getting a pay rise here or something. This could be exciting. And he literally, in a sentence, he totally wrecked my life at that point. He literally just said, uh, I just have to tell you that uh, the company's gone into administration. And can you um, just get your coats and your bags and get yourself out? We've got security in the building, so you can't take anything out to to, uh, to ensure that the assets were safe. You know, Because if you're halfway through a game, obviously, you can't suddenly trash the place. And we were led out into the street and I was stood in the street in Cheetah Mill and literally it was like a bereavement. I went home and I sat on the sofa and just cried for the whole afternoon. Uh, my partner at the time was just came back and thought and had actually thought the state of me that somebody had died. That's just, and I suppose then it came into perspective that nobody had died, but it felt like that because I get so close to people emotionally when I work um I'd, we were in a company then that had 60 70 people it had, it had grown we were working on bigger better things and yeah i had to start again but we were halfway through fifa so electronic arts were kind enough in hindsight on one hand to take us on to finish the game so that was really good of them for six months with the promise that then when the game's finished the fifa fifa game comes out you can then move into the studio and work on some of our other projects so we finished the game uh, within the testing period at the end after six months. And again, a very strange story. I, I mean, we always, always used to work with headphones and music on. And I took my headphones off because somebody tapped me on the shoulder. And again, somebody told us there's a meeting going on in the boardroom. And I went into the boardroom and literally the team that we'd gone across with, the six, which then included my brother, who was the artistic one who gave me the inspiration. And I ended up getting him a job there. They, they basically said the, you know, his... Uh, Here's a check. Goodbye. Thank you very much. And that was it. I was home within an hour and I had no job again. So within a space of 18 months from having the most settled, perfect games career in an industry that was only growing, you know, I don't know where I'd be now if I'd carried on that. I'd probably live in America, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't. You'd still be Middleton. <laughs> yeah, I'd still be Middleton, Manchester, but, you know, I'd probably be Zooming yeah. every day. Um, <laughs> But that the games companies all a lot of my friends went abroad and worked in American right. games companies. So, but I, I'd had enough by then. I couldn't work on that level where there was a chance that I took it too personally. That's how I. That's just the way I am. It's interesting, isn't it? The gaming industry was so strong in Manchester. I remember that. Yeah, massively. We had Ocean Software. We had Acclaim. Afterwards, we had um, we had loads in the northwest. There's Travelers Tales in Nuts. We did loads. And we were we worked for. Um, we had a games 
a gaming industry football team. They were the best in the We had some amazing footballers because it was very, very male dominated and of the demographic of five siders basically. Right. In black t shirts. <laughs> um, mainly in black t shirts, playing football in Dark Martins. Um, <laughs> but we had a great gamers league. And one of my little stories from FIFA, which was a good one that uh, we used to get a copy of the game when it came out after every game, you always got a plaque. So going back to Elton John, who's got, also got a strand through this story, is that we used to get a plaque, one of those gold disc type things that go on the wall, like how many sales and your name on it. And in my studio at home here, I've still got quite a few of them on the wall. And it's like a badge of honour. But back then, we also used to get a copy of the game. And I remember giving it to my nephew one Christmas. And during the period of the game in FIFA, we'd put the pictures of all the people who played on the works football team into the game. So that when you played as the England football team and they scored and Alan Shearer ran to the camera with his arm in the air, it was my face. (laughs) (laughs) Which, if we we rewind a bit where I said I wanted to be a footballer, (laughs) I've actually scored for England, so there's not many people can say that. In fact, I scored about eight goals in one game. Um, So, yeah, playing against my nephew. But, yeah, I've I've been a footballer. I've had a number one. I've pretty much picked, picked I've ticked all the boxes in a very roundabout way. I love it. And then what happened after that? How did you get so you kind of cut, took more control of your own career and your own destiny? Yeah, so I, I sort of took more control, again, through word of mouth more than anything. I got a job in a school in Wally Range High School in South Manchester. I met the head and I told her all these things that I could do to the school and transform things coming from a very different point of view from education because education tends to be done in the same sort of ways. And the ones who stand out are the ones who do things very differently in education. And that's where I came at it from, saying, you know, get the kids involved in this. Maybe include the art therapy and things that are a little bit different. So, yeah, I've been there a long time, um, 17 years now, just in the stable sense, and work that down to, you know, working part-time and doing things, and, and then your art career takes over. So you know, working across three schools, creating literature, branding, working in other schools, creating wall art, and basically things to stimulate students. I've been a governor for probably 10 years across two schools because to me, getting to kids and education and working with kids in a different way and also addressing it, governing bodies can be quite stale, I think, in the past, but I think they are getting more modern and younger. And I think that's so important to to get to kids and attract kids in a different way and approach the way that education's done. And are your kids creative? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Obviously, my wife works in media and does creative things every day. So I rub off her, she rubs off me, and she's my worst critic. (laughs) And I get... I do, I do cry on my own in darkened rooms quite a lot when she tells me (laughs) my drawing's rubbish. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm like, well, I didn't want the truth. She went, well... Yeah, you're putting it out. And she's always right. That's the most annoying thing. So I think it's a woman thing. So, yeah, my daughter sings, dance, YouTube, does the lot. Um, she wants to act and dance and do things like that. My little boy's more like me. He's very quiet and very sensitive, I suppose. He's more a mirror of how I was growing up. So what I'm trying to do, I mean, he does like drawing. Um, so I try and get him to sit with me and draw. But the main thing that I am doing as a, father I suppose is I'm trying to teach him to be stronger than I was and I think that's really important that I was quite brittle growing up 
And I think if I wasn't as brittle and I was a bit more believed what people said about me, I suppose, then I probably would have made it as a footballer. I probably would have done a lot more things and been out there because I've never had the confidence that I've had now at this age. And I would have liked that when I was younger. And I think as a parent, I would like them to be the, I would like me to be the person that they see, which is a very, very profound comment, but they see me as a superhero can do anything. I want to be that superhero can do anything. You know, I can't fly and I sometimes at home wear my underpants on the outside. But as regards the other things, it's I want to be that parent that I've always wanted. And I've always been lucky enough to have, but it's different eras. So you've got to teach them different things. I think you've said to me in the past that it's only in the last couple of years that you really felt that your work is valued or that you felt there was value to it. And why was that so recently? Would you say what changed in your life for you to start to feel that? Because I think think for many years I've done portraits for people. I've done commissions. I've done okay as a sideline. That's, I suppose, probably an easier way of putting it as an artist. And many people will say, you know, you're, if you say to somebody you're an artist, there is a, there is a, a stock reply, what sort of artist? Um, generally a, an, an alcoholic one, <laughs> yeah. um, which is usually the one you get. Um, but no, it's, I don't think people think you can make a living from it. And maybe I've always kept that at the back of my mind. It is a daft thing. Can you draw pictures and make money from it? Whereas because of the way I am, I prefer to make money as a, as a byproduct of everything that I do rather than I'm never driven by the money, so to speak. So it is a case of, you know, I want to, about three years ago, I did be in the city and I, I thought I'll send in an application for it, see where it goes. I had an idea for a B. I'm very good with creative ideas. I tend to run with them and talk rubbish for ages till lots of great ideas come out. And I came up with Haspienda because I was a big fan of the Haspienda, big fan of Manchester music and that era. And I came up with Haspienda as a little play on words. And it's just it's just flown since there, if you pardon the pun. <laughs> I did the B. I painted it in a garage, my mum's friend's garage, who came out and gave me chicken sandwiches every day <laughs> um, and cups of tea. And I painted this B. And uh, su- such a surreal experience. And I painted this huge B. Everybody's seen the bees around Manchester. They were amazing. And they, they, those bees, they not only changed my life, I think they changed almost the path of the city in some, in some respects. Again, might sound a bit of a large statement, but I told them it changed my life. I, I did the bee. I managed to then get the guts to put it on at Hacienda Classical, which was never going to happen unless I really mm. pushed it because it was health and safety issues. There was this, that, and the other. And I just said, please, just get it to sit on the side of the stage It'll be seen by thousands. It'll be photographed. It'll follow the Hacienda brand across the world. And it will make such a massive impact about Manchester. And it did, and it got on the stage. And I stood on the crowd at that event. And I was literally in the crowd, bouncing around with the music, because I love it. And nobody knew that that was my bee. And I I loved that aspect. And only at the end, when my friends dobbed me into the big crowd we were in, and just went, he painted that, because there were people taking pictures. (laughs) And then suddenly I was literally in front of it, paraded in front of it with every person that walked past. Here's the artist, here's the artist. And I think I got more attention, more attention than the people on the stage towards the end. I think the, on- the encore at Hacienda Classical that year was amazing. I was at that gig. So, I remember it. Oh, yeah. Gosh. I missed those. They were sweeping up around me at the end. 
and another yeah, example of where you you are in a situation where you can see the the impact and the effect that your art's having on people without them knowing it was you yeah, it must absolutely. be overwhelming that's my that's my that's i think again i've never analyzed this but only speaking to you recently and i suppose in this sort of situation you only sort of analyze it when you it comes out loud like the print works mural that i did started out as a very small thing Again, I was commissioned by the Printworks because the B was in the Printworks. So I struck up a good relationship with Freddie in the Printworks, God rest his soul. Um, Fred Booth, who did amazing things for Manchester and charity in Manchester. So he became a very close friend. And that hurt a lot when he passed on because he really supported me. Um, and he just said, can you do one of your pieces of artwork, which I've seen, put it in our boardroom. And when they come in, you can have your name on it, whatever, we'll shout about you. And lots of people will see it, lots of the, the high-flying business people of Manchester and beyond. So I created this piece, again, got emotionally connected, did it over about three months, went in, presented it. And literally, I just it was just silence. They were like, and Fred was like, I've got goosebumps. And the, the impact of just a piece of artwork, and he said, we've got to get this where people can see it, which was probably what I wanted to hear, really. I was like, please put it on the outside of the building. It'll just be... I want it to be in a position where, and it's nothing about me, it's more about, I want this to be in a position, if it has that effect on you and gives you goosebumps, I want people to see it and give them something that they can take away from it. And I don't care if I never see it again, because I've been looking at it for 12 months. I want to be able to, people have that first impression. So eventually it took best part of 12 months to facilitate and bring together. I got all the photographers involved. We had Ian Tilt and Paul Husband, I even contacted Jill Fermanovsky, who's very famous for shooting Oasis pictures, uh, and Paul Wolfgang Webster, and I worked with them and again built up relationships with these people I'd never met and got some of their archive photos and put them within the artwork. And it just became a snowball and it ended up as this piece of artwork. And, you know, two months before it was unveiled, I'd managed to show it my dad in that time when he was really suffering from cancer. It sort of helped me through a time in my life that was very, very difficult up to the end when he died, he died on July the 1st, two years ago. And the idea was we were going to unveil in that month. So we pushed it back to October. And in the time, the three months, I literally, and I suppose or even up till now, I I put everything into working harder every day, I suppose, because it stops me from falling over and helping other people. Because if it stops them from falling over, it gives me the feeling that it's as a mental health thing, it's really good, a good thing to do. So when we unveiled the artwork, I had all my family there and Clint Boone was good enough to come and unveil it in the print works. And I would have liked a bigger crowd there. It was just a time of the time of the unveil. Um, and I put my mum and dad's, they would have been celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary in that month. I put my mum and dad's wedding picture digitally into the artwork so that for me, it was, it was almost a nod to my mum and dad. I mean, 60 years is incredible. You don't get that for for murder that's crazy um and they the unveil of it nobody knew except me and my wife and when they pulled the sheet off i stepped back and the, the flashes that were going from the cameras and everything and i could see my little my frail mum at the bum and my, my mum at the front and somebody pointed out to her that she was in the picture um and it's just that i then cried because i know what it meant you know i'm welling up now talking about it but i know what it meant to me but almost what it meant to them. 
and the impact it had on them as a family and as my mum, because we are a very close family. And my mum and dad are now on the streets of Manchester forever within this mural, and nobody knows except me and my family and people are walk past and go, who's that black and white picture there? And to me, it doesn't matter. You know, they'll connect with Oasis in the corner or Stone Roses or the Bees or Peter Kay or anybody. But for me, it's that little image of my mum and dad within. That's such a wonderful story and such a legacy, isn't it, really, for the city and for your family? It's amazing. And if anybody listening to this hasn't seen that mural, you should definitely take the time because we don't go into the city centre enough at the moment. But if you go and have a quick... A quick injection of Manchester by looking at that wall. It's on Danzig. It's on Danzig Street at the side of the printworks. Your portraits are incredible, Justin, and we've talked about them a little bit, but you've painted some incredible Mancunians, either born, bred or adopted Mancunians. Tell me about a few of those. Yeah, I've been quite fortunate, again, with some of my connections and through friends, through my wife as well, from meeting people at events. Um, I drew Rio Ferdinand a long time ago and created some T-shirts for him, which went globally around the world. And I tell that story in education quite a lot about the power of Twitter and tell that when I'm doing my careers talks that the power of one person with a big standing on a social media platform presses their button. It goes around the world. So be careful what you put on social media. And that was it's how my T-shirt went around the world. James Corden had it on Rio Ferdinand. Um and it's just being able to create for Noel Gallagher I've painted. I didn't get to meet him, unfortunately, because that was in the time of, of my dad's passing. Um, I've done Sir Bobby Charlton, spent an afternoon with him, which, again, it was a, at the time was amazing, but almost surreal. I, I only when you come back and step away from things like that, do you realise you've just met Sir Bobby Charlton and his whole story? Because I've, I've grown up as a United fan and knowing the story of Munich and Manchester United inside out. I've done um, George Best. I painted for a Drew for Callum Best for his 30th birthday. I know he's got that. Um, and Eric Cantona was the one that uh, actually did make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, when I met him at the Lowry a few years ago, I took the drawing along all framed up, walked past the crowd of United fans who were trying to trip me up on the way. <laughs> as I worked my way to the front of the queue uh, with a security guard. Um, And I literally, I just didn't expect, because the the manager of the Lowry had seen it and said, come along and give it to him. And I was literally just put in a room with Eric Cantona, just me and him. And I I had no idea what to do. My French is rubbish. (laughs) Um, So I gave him the artwork and he just stared at it again. It was, I could see that he was moved by it, but I don't think he understood that I'd actually done it. So, and I said, I've drawn it. And he was looking at me and he's broken French. And he's like, no, I don't think so. Um, and I said, no, I've drawn it for you. And it's, it's a gift to you. And I, all I wanted was just to stand there next to him. I didn't care. And fortunately, I bribed the photographer before I went in. And he took some pictures of me, handed it over. And, and he was good enough to stand and have a picture with me. And I walked away. It was five minutes of his life. But it's, it's given me such um, another moment along with the bee that gave me the confidence to, you know, if you if you take an opportunity, you've got to run with it. And, you know, if you do get the, the glimpse that some, something could happen, you've got to really put everything into making it happen because it can, anything can happen. Absolutely. And like you said before, you made it happen that you got your bee on the stage at Castlefield Bowl. And if you'd not done that, not put it out into the universe, well, that moment wouldn't have happened and it was massively important to you. 
Yeah, absolutely. And if I hadn't, if I hadn't applied for being the city, I mean, these are things that have now changed my life in a course that I'm working on projects now that I could never even imagine. Mm. And that is why throughout the years I've maybe just done certain things. I've drawn people and, like I say, done commissions and been in the games industry, et cetera, which are is great stories. But until you get to a point where you're getting some satisfaction from what you do and loving what you do, I now am very fortunate that I can I can draw one day, I can paint another day, I can do some digital, I can speak to amazing people who inspire me on the phone like yourselves. And it's just connecting with people who make a difference. And I think that's being nice to people along the way and along with the values of Roland and Transfield is say thank you, be thankful for the people you work with and be thankful for the relationships that you strike up. Mm. And I mean, talk about saying thank you I know that you do a huge amount of work for charity and you give a lot of your artwork away your creative work away for free I mean I met you the first time when we were working on Vincent Company's testimonial and you yeah. you did the, the um, illustration didn't you which you auctioned off at the gala dinner which raised a huge amount of money but I also remember you've been on the stage alongside Gary Lineker <laughs> and Vincent and then you've got the whole first team of City and Ollie's there and Mike Phelan and your work is raising a massive amount of money for A Bed Every Night uh, with Andy Burnham's campaign to, to yeah, help yeah. off sleeping. So, you know, that's your thank you to the city, isn't it? I can see that in the, in the way you operate. I think so, yeah. I think that's the thing. I, I start the journey, I follow the journey through, and then I like to know what the end is and whether that is standing in the crowd and watching people's reaction or whether it is being in a room full of, like you say, the city squad, uh, millionaires, people from the highest walks of of life and I was sat on a table there and you walk in and you've all got your dinner suits on and sat around the table and before you know what who any of these people are you you do that natural instinct of I wonder what he does or what does he look like or what's that dicky bill that you're wearing and you know etc and who am I sat next to will I be able to get on and I was sat on a table with like these people who had these homeless stories that were the most moving stories that you can imagine of people who've come from nothing, destitute, and are on the top table of dinner events where they've made such a difference in Manchester. And then they're asking me what I did. And I said, well, I've just done a, I've done the colouring in that's going to be auctioned. <laughs> and I sort of try and belittle what I've done. But then someone comes and taps me on the shoulder and said, can you present it to Vincent before the evening starts? And I don't get nervous with things, really. I'm not that sort of... I used to. I used to suffer a lot from panic attacks and probably in my, in my early days till I had the confidence to to be. And it's having that confidence to not not feel inferior to anybody, I think. And I think that's a big thing is being in a room full of millionaire footballers, etc. I could still stand next to Aguero and know I'm taller. <laughs> and, you know, and still have that ability to say, I've created something with my talent that is above and beyond and you've got your talent which is there everybody's got a talent and everybody's got something that they should be able to be stand next to everybody and be proud of um and gary lineker introduced me to the stage it was it was very very surreal i gave vincent the work and he was like the first thing that he said was is this for me can i keep it <laughs> and i was like oh my god <laughs> it's like yeah of course you can keep it so we ended up printing a second one so he kept the first one we printed a second one and he signed it and we raised i think we raised eight and a half thousand i think amazing it was just amazing and from the other events that i've done i've helped maggie's which i'm working on at the minute 
I'm doing 10 canvases for there um, for a big event when we when we're able to, which are Manchester centric and prevent breast cancer, which again means a lot to me. We've lost a family member to breast cancer. Uh, I'm doing a big thing for the Hacienda, which is going to raise money for the Christie's, which was where my dad was for a long period of time. So, yeah, in the last, since the B, since the B in the city, I've raised uh, £55,000 for Manchester-centric charities. And they, um, not so much just Manchester-centric, more charities that make a massive difference within the city and community projects that mean a lot to me as well. Because I don't think it needs to be something that I can associate with to get passionate about and have that connection. Yeah. And if it makes, it is that, again, going back to your values, is it's planting uh, planting trees you might not see the end result but you are making such a massive difference by by planting at one end totally and that's my favorite value you do that in spades justin no oh, thank you it's been a privilege to work with you this past kind of six months with your idea for mask chester which has raised money for Manchester Mind and the Mayor's Charity, hasn't it? So, um, and that was yeah. a, a great project. What have you got coming up? What's to come now? The links to what I'm doing now seem to have all sort of converged because I'm working on uh, an Alan Turing piece of artwork. So I sold a piece of artwork last summer, which raised money for, uh, oh gosh, I think it was Maggie's at the time. And obviously that went really well and it featured Alan Turing. And somewhere down the line, via the viral social media, the Turing family saw it. And they've asked me to paint Alan Turing for a national exhibition, which is going to be held, I think, at the Museum of Science and Industry, because I made them do it in Manchester. <laughs> was that not the original plan? <laughs> um, well, I think there was talk of Bletchley Park. Yeah. Park sorry, Bletchley Park. Yeah. And I think they've talked about the, uh, the Museum of History in London or something on them lines. And I said, well, I'm doing it and I want it to be in Manchester. And I stamped my foot quite hard um, and cut them off from a couple of Zoom calls. And we ended up getting it in Manchester. So um, it's just now we are, we've got a couple of pe more people involved. It's snowballed and hopefully they're turning it into a documentary where it's going to be something on the lines of following me as I paint the portrait throughout the documentary and talk about my career and also the strands of Alan Shoring and what he means to Manchester. But more so, not just from an LGBTQ, from the uh, the way he was treated when he died, from the incredible work he did, more the legacy of what he created and what is here now. So the likes of GTHQ, the fact that we are able to do Zoom calls, the fact that we are able to do all these amazing things, that is more the aspect of where we're heading and how kids can get involved in STEM subjects in schools. So it, it means a lot to me because it does tick a lot of my boxes from my career. But it also means that when I went to GCHQ and told them that, because they said, have you heard of Alan Shoring when I went and had my first meeting? And I said, well, funnily enough, I'm painting him at the minute. And they went, oh, no, that's very bizarre. So I said, well, yeah, I'm unveiling him at an exhibition next year. And they went, I don't believe you. I said, I am. And he said, well, we're doing an, um, a top secret exhibition at the Science and Industry. And it turns out these two totally different projects that I've, I'm working alongside both end at the same result. So they both end up at this exhibition. So next summer or whenever we are able to do so, the £50 note is being unveiled, which has got Alan Turing on the back of it now, who's, you know, was voted the greatest 
uh, greatest man of the 20th century or greatest person of the 20th century. Um, and I'm painting him for this exhibition and it's going to be beamed hopefully across the world when they broadcast it. So if I don't get a BAFTA for painting, <laughs> then there's got to be a new category invented. Puss it out to the universe. Um, yeah, put it out there now and see if we can make it happen. So anything else? Yeah, so I've been asked, and this is a very bizarre project, but an incredible project. I've been asked by a man called Bernie Hollywood. He's an adventurer explorer in the in this sort of uh, the body of almost Richard Branson. Um, he's that type of man who nobody have heard of, but he does again incredible. He's raised forty two million for charity. It's incredible. He's going to do a solo crossing of the Atlantic next year in this boat, just him on his own against the elements in the Talisker Whiskey race next year. And he's asked me to design his boat, which, so the boat has a, is a standard design. I'm not going to build it or anything. I'm not going to be sat in the back garden like, <laughs> so, like, Noah, like Noah with his chipboard. Um, no, I am going to do the artwork for the boat. I should rephrase that before people start knocking and on. Also, I'm now thinking of the canal boat that you blew up. <laughs> well, yeah, there is a connection. There's a theme running through. Um, so, yeah, the connection is I once blew up a boat. I've not told him that, actually. <laughs> So I'm creating this boat artwork and the theme is uh, we're going to try and raise with this publicity from his race, from my artwork, we're going to try and raise a million pound for mental health awareness and the suicide prevention program for young adults in the UK. So it has got, again, a massive connection to me, to everybody like me, probably to everybody right now. And again, to the young adults who are suffering as well. So that race is next year. I'll be working on that over the next six months. We're working with some of the sort of the big players corporate-wise. And that, again, hopefully they're going to turn that into a documentary. So not that I'm trying to hog the camera, but, um, yeah, that's where I'm heading and that's called The Boat of Hope. So watch this oh, space for that. That's wonderful. It's interesting. We've been asked to help a client who's going to be doing that same race the year after. 2022 oh, wow. I could do his boat well we'll have a word definitely I thought he wanted me to row it with him so I said no to that but he just wants me to support but um yeah and what an amazing well, it's 30,000 miles isn't it it's like a mare to Antigua a long it's wider way. than he it's wider than Heaton Park and that's probably that used to see me off when I used to get in the boat at Heaton Park so <laughs> it's that's as much as you need to know and uh, but one thing is he's put my signature on his uh, polo shirt that the team are wearing Oh, that's brilliant. So I will get to go across with him in some way. Are you not doing something with one of your all-time idols at the moment? I am, yes. Yeah, I um, had a cup of tea with Peter Hook, which is, uh, I like to drop that in there just now, clang it off the floor. <laughs> is um, Well, I, I grew up, I was obsessed with Peter Savile and New Order and the art and design, and that's probably where I get my, a lot of my design skills from, that coloration and not having the band on the covers of things. I just thought that was amazing. I've made connections with Peter Hook from, I did a painting of Ian Curtis 10 years ago now that was auctioned off um, at for Mental Health Charity Mind, uh, an exhibition of Ian Curtis's uh, life. Um, so I, I made friends with Peter Hook then, and he's been incredible. I mean, he's, who he is anyway is an icon. But to actually, I mean, I, I sort of judge people whether they can remember your name and whether they can remember your wife's name or anything like that, or even your kids. And he always asked me everything about myself, my family. And I think I went a couple of weeks ago, we are working on a big Hacienda piece together and with his with his team to hopefully raise a load of money for Christie's and just create a visual masterpiece 
that will sit in the houses of Hacienda fans all over the world because it's still a it's still a global brand. It still has a reach and it's an emotion that people feel the same as looking at my artwork, hopefully when they hear the first strands of Guru Josh come on or, you know, guy called Gerald or anything like that. Just the first strands of a tune where you just you just put your head up to the sky and you know where you were, you know where you were. And that's that's what I want to try and emote with the artwork. Is there anything that you've got on your list that you need to accomplish that you've not managed to do so yet? I don't know, really. Uh, I, I, I think I, I like, like say, creating artwork that I've done. Lots of people will know that I've done the Printworks mural, but millions won't, so to speak. I'd love to create a piece of artwork outside Old Trafford and, you know, our hotel football and have it somewhere where I've gone for 35 years with my dad um as a season ticket holder done that walk thousands of times he used to walk me up and in the end I used to walk him up which is a very strange thought now um because he was struggling to get to the ground in the end and I've not been back I've only been back once since he passed away and that was to take my little boy mm. in his scarf Aww. which was an amazing experience again I cried going up the steps I'm a soft get sorry um but <laughs> I'd love to create a piece of artwork in that space or around the United environment that millions of fans would see, appreciate, and just have that moment of connection with me, with them, and with them, with their thoughts and memories of Old Trafford. So if the people at United are listening now, even hotel football, somewhere that's yeah has that footfall of United fans, and I apologise to City, but I doubt I did deal with Vincent Company's artworks. Well, let's put that out to the universe then and see if we can make that happen. Yeah. And then also Marcus Rashford. I mean, we saw you paint Marcus Rashford um, in, lock, in, well, I don't know, it was one, some restriction or something, unbelievable likeness and got so much love on social media. And you've not given that to him yet, have you? No, and, <laughs> and funnily, funnily enough, I've only had that in a very small, I've not even, I don't think I've even posted it fully on social right. media. I've just enjoyed showing it around getting the traction of the, the initial time lapse of him mm. i've done that thing but i've never unveiled the full thing and i'd love the moment to give it to marcus rashford because i think if there, if there ever was a mancunian role model for our times he's it definitely he is it he is absolutely it yeah well let's see if we can do, do oh, that too to put that out to the universe we've got a, <laughs> tell you what, there's, not room, there's not much room for clouds up there in a minute <laughs> My thought bubbles are flying around the place. Well, I need a few thought bubbles now because it's quick fire round. So, I mean, I don't oh, even gosh. need to ask City or United, do I? So, we, we know what that is. Absolutely. Favourite Manchester band or artist? Uh, I'll have to say New Order. Yeah, absolutely. And what would you order at the Chippy? Well, we could start a whole running debate, couldn't we? It's always a chip muffin when I was growing up. <laughs> yeah. I don't even want to go down the chip barn because that means you're posh. It's a chip, <laughs> chip muffin. Chip but Muffin? Chip muffin. Is it chip balm? That's. Do you want? Well, do you want to I'm start? I'm from Salford. Chip balm. Oh, you're posh. <laughs> uh, no. I, well, I would have been a chip muffin with fish scrapings. I was going to ask you about scrapings. We always used to hang around the chip at the end of the night so we could get them. Absolutely. I, I took a girl on a date and got a fish scraping. <laughs> Things improved since then, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> didn't it? Didn't last long. No, to be I can't imagine didn't, it didn't. No, we didn't get to a pie anyway. <laughs> Okay, some Manchester up in three words. Um, family, 
community. I've not got, I've got too many. Love. Mm, definitely. And, and then one that reaches over all of it is home. Oh, yeah. That's four, but I'll let you have four. I can have four because that's in a bracket. And if you could put five things into a painting that summed up Manchester, what would they be? Now, this is really difficult. <laughs> I think from the male and female aspect, I'd obviously have, um, I think Emmeline Pankhurst stands out as somebody who's, yeah, was formidable fighting the cause for women. And that's had an impact across the world. And she's from Moss Side. So you can't really go much further than there. Tony Wilson, cultural catalyst, massive impact on my life, music-wise, and just everything-wise, and probably impacts life now in many ways we don't even know. Um, and I've said Marcus Rashford, I think, as a role model for our times, he could play for City, he could play for United, borderline Liverpool, but I'd still think he was amazing. Um, and then I think the last two places, I think I'd just leave for my mum and dad. So, because, you know, everything that I am is, 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 has come from them. And obviously my dad passed away. So, you know, I dedicate this to, to him, basically. To your dad, Roy. My dad, Roy. Yeah. Yes. And I so, know he's yeah. been a massive impact on your life, hasn't he? And, um. Yeah. Yeah. A massive impact. And I don't realise until I talk about him, he wasn't that sort of person who would say, you're amazing son or pat you on the shoulder and stuff but he'd tell everybody who knew you mm, yeah <laughs> he was that sort of dad everybody as long as everybody in the pub knew <laughs> i was the best son i've got three brothers so the four best sons <laughs> um you know so that's that's how he works whereas my mum would would tell us more yeah um so yeah i think that's that male female generation but my mum's still going strong 81 and is amazing fantastic but yeah i do miss my dad and that do, my dad's my dad passing away 18 months ago does impact me every single day so if i can make a difference that inadvertently helps me if i can make a difference to other people that helps me then that's that's how i go about my life i feel emotional now <laughs> i'm just gonna say that <laughs> you do you do impact people thank you um, yeah. you do and you make a big difference to a lot of people's lives so thank you so much for joining me on We Built the City and I've loved working with you over the past couple of years. You've become a friend. Um, I'm inspired by what you do and how much you give. And I can see that you're a true example of giving more than you than you take. And you're the DNA of Manchester for me, Justin. So I look forward thank to you. lots more things ahead. Thank you so much. I'll go before I cry. <laughs> <laughs> before I end up crying at the end of a podcast. That's not good, is it? <laughs> Uh, but thank you so much it's an honour to be I've listened to all these and to be featured in amongst people who I totally respect and admire and and working with yourself who I admire uh, and respect as a, as a leader in the city it's amazing thank you thanks Justin and let's make sure that we get that painting to Marcus we will we'll try <laughs> thank you thank you so much Justin Eagleton helped to build this city by believing that everyone has their own talent to be proud of, by seeing the impact of his art without being seen, by being paddled round the pub by his proud dad Roy, and by blowing up Des Barnes' boat in Corrie. We Built This City is out every Thursday, when you'll hear from another incredible Greater Mancunian. If you want to find more out about Roland Ransel PR, and you'd like some help in creating your legacy, please head to rdpr.co.uk for more information or give us a call on the same number we've had for 24 years 0161 236 1122.
Thank you and see you next time.